thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight, yes, eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic and pay the postage of £4.95. And, as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Athletic Podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's ten free beers for those slow at maths. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest craft breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then, they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, and a beer snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash off to get your free case. And don't forget, right now, the athletic listeners get two extra free beers. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone and this is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm joined, as always, by Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas, the writers of The Athletic. Uh, hello, guys. Hello, morning, good morning. Matt. Hello, nice to speak to you. And also, uh, the right back, uh, Lee Dixon. And uh, a man who played 206 games for the Arsenal, scored 30 goals, one of which will live in the memory forever. Michael Thomas. Hello, Michael. Morning. Thank you for inviting me. It's all right. <laughs> it's all right. It's very nice to have you. Now, before we start talking uh, about uh, your career at the Arsenal, there's a couple of things uh, I want to clear up. Last week, by the way, uh, I mentioned that Lee Dixon cycled down to the Arsenal Stadium and uh, I said he was outside the West Stand and I got corrected by a number of people uh, who apparently said it was the East Stand, right? Which it was, by the way, the East Stand. I corrected by a number of people, none of whom are sitting on this podcast at the moment who just let me say it. I just said, oh, he's an idiot and other people will tell him. So thanks for your help, guys. I appreciate that. Anytime. We don't, act, we, we don't actually listen to anything you say. That's the point of that. Well, okay. Well, I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Nice to speak to you as well, Lee. Um, on a more serious note, by the way, uh, lots of love from the Handbrake Off uh, podcast crew uh, to Mr. Ian Wright, who came under some fearful abuse on Twitter. Uh, there's no need for that. I'm sure everyone uh, would wish him all the best. Uh, I hope he's listening. Hello, Wright. Much love. Uh, now, before we start chatting, Michael, uh, we, we decided uh, to talk uh, briefly about favourite last-minute Arsenal goals, because uh, you scored, I think, our favourite last-minute Arsenal goal. Uh, so we wanted to know, aside from Michael's goal against Liverpool uh, uh, in 1988, uh, I'm only saying that to see if anyone will correct me. <laughs> <laughs> 1989. Um, Lee, let's start with you. What's your favourite oh, last-minute Arsenal goals? Why do we have to start with me? Because I'm, I'm going to need, I'm going to need Amy's help here. She's going to have to remind me what the goal was. I remember the occasion. I remember being there, but I have no clue what year it was. I can't remember who scored. I remember sitting. So, Amy, last-minute goals at Tottenham. I know Wrighty got one, didn't he? I knew you were going to say this. Right, ninety-three, somebody, I think. But somebody else got one. 
at White Hart Lane, I'm 99% sure. There must have been another one or near the end. I don't know whether it won as a game, but but I was in the st- I I was injured, and I'm unless I'm making this up, Wrighty was injured as well. Me and him went to the game because we obviously it was Tottenham Arsenal. We wanted to go, and we were sitting in director's box at Tottenham, and somebody scored late on, so it might not be last minute, but I'm still taking it. And we were told before the game, look, if if we score, obviously we're in the director's box at Tottenham. We've got to behave ourselves. Anyway, the goal went in. And right, he stood on his chair and literally to all the Tottenham directors was just going, yeah, with a clenched fist at everybody. And I was trying to pull him, pull him down by his jacket. And we had to, we were escorted from the director's box um, in disgrace. But obviously it didn't, didn't stop us celebrating. But So I can't remember the year. I can't remember who scored. Apart from that, loads of detail. Do you know, I, it's any goal that makes any Arsenal player get escorted in disgrace from the Tottenham <laughs> director's box is fine by me. Uh, Amy, you do have loads, I remember. Pick a couple for us. OK, well, one of them was, was a, a righty one at White Hart Lane, which is where I thought you were going with this. Righty did one of his classic celebrations and careered like right the way from one end of the... Um, uh, of the pitch to the other. And then when he got to the other end, he kind of flopped down like a belly flop um, <laughs> in front of everybody. It was, a, it was a really majestic celebration to mark the moment, and that was great. But I think um, uh, also, uh, same venue, actually, 1987, David Castle Littlewoods Cup oh. semi-final. Oh. One of the last kicks of uh, what people who were there kind of regard as, as a moment that is only just behind Anfield 89. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was very, very, very special for lots of reasons. And then just a final nod further back in time to Alan Allen Sunderland. I think a, a last-minute goal needs a phenomenal celebration. Some, somehow those celebrations, we'll come to this in a minute, Mickey. Um, <laughs> are, uh, Thanks for that. Uh, Cheers. Are, uh, <laughs> <laughs> are part of it. It's part of it all. Well, and, and also, by the way, and Alan Sunderland, because we did get asked last week about um, our favourite goal celebrations and somebody mentioned to me on Twitter that we hadn't mentioned that one, but for some mm. absolutely outstanding swearing on live TV straight after he scored that goal. So we do, we do appreciate that. James, what about you? Uh, I think from what's left, I'm going to go for another derby game. 1996 at Highbury, it was Arsenal Spurs and it was one all, uh, I think, in the 88th minute. And Arsenal actually got two late goals, one Tony Adams in the 88th minute and then Dennis Bergkamp in the 89th. That brilliant drag back after that Ian Wright cross. So sort of two Mm. for the price of one for that one. I'll go for that one. Three, one, it finished. Sweet, I'm just crossing out various goals here that I can't mention. <laughs> um, Michael, I mean, do you have a favourite Arsenal last-minute goal, or, or is it really is it just yours essentially? No, 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 no. I'm gr- growing up, FA Cup final would definitely be the Alan Sunderland. I always remember that day. You know, I mean, going down after after the uh, game's finish, playing on a little patch of green and pretending the Alan Sunderland's going to winning goal always. I'm going to have um, uh, Carnu uh, against Chelsea. Uh, he got oh, a oh yeah! Forgot but about that one. Just, it was a beaut. It was just leaving uh, leaving the old porn star Ed De Hoy on the floor, <laughs> and uh, and then the, uh, who are those two centre backs who are in? Hang on a minute, they're World Cup winning centre backs. What I'll do is I'll wallop the ball over the top of them into the corner, and then go and celebrate in front of the Arsenal fans. One of my favourite all time favourite Arsenal moments, uh, actually, Carnu's uh, goal. <laughs> 
I'm joined by Lee Dixon and Michael Thomas. Michael, Michael, you joined Arsenal. Uh, I'm saying you joined Arsenal uh, in 1982 as a schoolboy. And then you made your debut against Spurs in the first leg of that League Cup semi-final uh, against yeah. Spurs at Highbury. Uh, I'm reading you're a boyhood Tottenham fan. Is that right? It was, yeah. I was a... Uh... Going, I never knew that. Spurs. Everybody knew that. You never knew that. I never knew that. It's been out in the public domain for ages. Yeah, I used to go to watch Spurs, watching the 82 team. Obviously, Archibald and Crooks and Hoddle, Ardiles. That was my, sort of like my team. Decent, decent team actually. Team. But then you, you joined, you joined Arsenal, and I always, I always said to my son, if because I, I always thought, what if, what if he became a professional footballer and scored for Tottenham against Arsenal in front of the North Bank and then grabbed the shirt? I said we'd have to have him adopted. You know, there's no, no other way forward. We, how were your parents about you playing, uh, about you joining Arsenal? They were fine because um, I was at obviously at Chelsea for a long, long time from the age of eleven, and until I signed for uh, Arsenal. Michael, what are your memories of coming through that youth team with, oh. you know, in the same sort of generation, uh, Tony Adams, Paul Merson, Dave Rowcastle, um, Niall Quinn. There was such an incredible core that went on to be phenomenal football players. And I, I just wondered if you could paint the pictures compared to what we imagine an academy kid's life to be like nowadays, full of luxury. There was no luxuries. The only thing you got was expenses. That's all the only thing you got um, yes. back as an academy, as an, uh, a schoolboy. And Lee would tell you, you know, all you mm. got is expenses, get there, there and back. And if you signed as a, um, a schoolboy for Arsenal, you got a pair of boots, and that'll be it, really. But at that time, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did, did they get you doing, um, you know, sort of jobs that they famously talk about sort of scrubbing not just boots but toilets and you know yes, sort of yes, learning the yeah. hard We've, way we all we learn the hard way you know it's been well documented documented that we've all done that way you know, learned that way and it's the best way to learn I think the chores that you had to do were I mean you would never get away with it now not just cleaning boots and stuff like that but we had to paint we had to paint the stand and uh and literally climb up, climb up on fencing and up, up kind of like structures that you would go. Well, you you wouldn't put. You'd have to have scaffolding up now and a safety net. And they used to send the young go go up there and paint that bit. And you'd be like, off you go, shinning up a, 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 a kind of like a post with a paintbrush, painting painting the stand. We never had that at Arsenal. We never had Arsenal. Up north, no, up no, north. No, no. it was a bit up rough north. up there, mate. In the eighties. Uh, in the summer, when they wanted to paint, uh, you know, bits and bobs around the stadium, they'd get fans in, and so you can have a season ticket for painting the stadium. Wow! I didn't yeah. know that. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's a question for both of you, uh, for Lee and for Michael. I mean, obviously, we don't want players climbing up on the top of stands, and uh, uh, but who's that up there on the floodlights? Oh, that's a Bama Yang. That'd just be weird. But <laughs> do you think? Do you think that something has been lost a little bit by the fact that the players are a bit more pampered now than they used to be? Lee, what do you think first? Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I think um, the game has changed in all different ways, and that's one of the that was one of the early changes. You know, it was like make sure the uh, the apprentice the apprentices then became um, going to school. They had um, they had educational things to do. I'm not I'm not saying that that was all wrong, but there was definitely a little bit of toughness taken out of the 
of the the upbringing of kids um, now they're very privileged now they come through the system they play a lot more football there's a lot more emphasis on technique so that's all a good thing but yeah the actual making of the man and uh be interesting to to hear what Michael says but that making making of the man for me was was doing those chores and having to not being able to go in the you know the, in the first team dressing room at Burnley if you walked in to pick the kit up off the floor and the first team had trained if you walked in and you knock on the door they would lock the door behind you and you would be in for a serious whack you know it was like right okay what we're going to do to him I was like I just didn't knock he said well you, you'll knock next time and, and I tell you what straight away you're like that on the door next thing you go can I come in they go just wait out there for a minute and then you go in and you have to pick all the dirty slips off the floor mm. and take the washing to the laundry and all that stuff and I mean I wouldn't want to be doing it now but it was certainly something that I'll never forget what do you think Michael <laughs> I think you're, I think Lee's right completely. You know, that was totally right. I was speaking to somebody at the academy, and and they were saying that the kids from eleven, twelve, just they walk around like they're professionals anyway, and the parents <laughs> think that they've made it already. That's what that's the hardest thing I think. And yeah. then uh, when a, a coach came to play a game, they're like, "Oh, this is not the first team coach. What are we doing in this rubbish coach?" I'm like, "Oh." <laughs> when they heard that, they went, "Right, next season we're going to change it to a proper." banged out minibus so they understand yeah (laughs) the other thing that uh, was around those times when you were coming through that I think was important in making players feel connected with where they were is that I think you used to spend a lot of time at Highbury around the box office or you know just ordinary people that work there (laughs) in different parts of the stadium the people answering the phones or 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 the groundsmen and you know someone like Lynn Cheney who you will know who's still at the club and has been working there for ever uh you know tell stories of you guys coming in and sharing packets of biscuits and sort of not going home after training and sort of hanging out with everyone yeah because i think you know obviously a footballer's life is just like you know you train in the morning and then you've got the afternoon free by that time you be bored silly so sometimes you just stay in there and you know help out the ticket office and just have a, have a good chat and answer the phones it was, it was a laugh just we answering the phones because they're like nah it's not him it's not a player on a, you know it's not Michael Thomas or it's not Paul Merson or anybody you know <laughs> I was going to ask Michael am I right in thinking that when you first came into the side you were playing your football pretty much as as a right back until a certain Lee Dixon came along and that's what saw you move into <laughs> midfield yeah yeah I didn't have Lee Dixon's pace and tenacity to tackling and that so yeah you know <laughs> they got it right in the end so what more I can't, I can't argue with that uh, yeah Basically, that's how it worked out. Um, obviously, I came to the club as a fullback from schoolboy days. Um, so, did you start off as a fullback when you were like at Chelsea? Yeah, I was a midfield player at Chelsea. I was a uh, yeah, midfield right. player as a schoolboy. Um, but you signed for Arsenal as a right yeah, back. Yeah, that's how it, what happened at Chelsea. I played for Chelsea about when I was about thirteen in their youth team, and against Tottenham. And I think we lost six-two or five-two. I scored. Come on, and scored. <laughs> and obviously, it got to the English schoolboys and the the county uh, associations. Why is this player playing so young? We never heard of him. And um, from that time, they was like, "Oh, we want to we want to meet this fella and bring him down to the English schoolboy trials. I want to see if we want to meet him." And that's what happened in the last sixty of the schoolboy trials. I went there with a pair of boots, and just in case they said anything, and said, "Oh yeah, do you want to play?" So yeah, ten minutes or ten fifteen minutes, and that was it. <laughs> I, I remember. I remember when 
I remember when Arsenal were kind of sniffing around and there was rumour that we were going to sign and I, all of a sudden I thought, I better start watching Arsenal games in case it happens. And obviously they were on the telly a lot more than Stoke were. So I, I, I'd, I'd kind of tune in and then and then I signed. Um, but I remember, I distinct, obviously I'm going to be focused on who's the right back and obviously Vivid left and this young lad was playing right back with this number two on his back. And I'm going, why do they need... And I honestly thought, I was like, why are they signing me? Because he looked, every time he gets the ball, he, he's creative. He just runs forward. I, and I and I, back in those days, I wasn't... Defending wasn't my forte either. It was kind of like, you know, just get forward. So George taught me how to defend. So I, I wasn't looking at the defensive side. It, once I got to know Michael, I realised he couldn't tackle a... <laughs> couldn't tackle a paper bag but um, um, from from that point I used to think well, why do they need me I mean this is a big mistake I'm going to go there and I'm not going to get a game and then but George had it all mapped out there was no yeah, way that definitely. he was going to stay there he got a plan for Michael to go into midfield and be this you know this block busting box to box you know a really energetic player and, and obviously the rest is history Michael, you you were playing at right back, as Lee said, when when he arrived, and and yet you scored nine goals in that first season in about thirty seven games. I mean, it's quite impressive for a right back. And I think I think I scored a few penalties, and uh, obviously playing with Dave Rocastle from from a young age, is it was been in front of me. So we was like when we attacked, we both attacked, and he knew my game, I knew his game, and they put me in most of the time. So yeah. The, they let ninety-seven goals in that season, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask if you ever got nine goals, Lee, but I suppose it's the other end you were worried about. I got nine in total, I think. How many own goals, though? Uh, yeah, more own goals. Yeah, yeah thanks for that. No, no, I still can't go over that Dave Seaman where you turned and just uh, loved him. I just can't get over that one. That's, I don't remember that's... that. Hey, Lee, we haven't mentioned that for weeks. Thank you, Michael. Come on again, um, Michael. I, I mean. I want to talk about uh, uh, 88-89 and the uh, and the decider, but that season, I mean, you had a terrific season that season, and we should have won the title, what, three or four games before, shouldn't we? Yeah, we definitely should have done, but obviously we wouldn't have been there before. So nerves um, obviously set in for us, going into the unknown. Um, getting to the Derby game, I think we was all ready to celebrate that weekend when the yeah. big Derby was celebrating, and obviously didn't go to, go to plan. Lee, uh, Dean Saunders, Tony fire. and Dean Saunders. I yeah. never, forget, I never, remember, uh, I never forget that. Every time I go to sleep at night, I just see Dean uh, Saunders turning him inside out. Like oh, Amy, Jeez. it was, um, it was pretty disastrous, wasn't it? That that sort of week, that derby and uh, well, Wimbledon. Wimbledon. Games. It's oh. funny when you're talking about that derby game. I'm, I'm not the world's biggest drinker, but all I can think about is how <laughs> how I really made myself ill. Um, I, I, I do remember buying some, I can't remember what that very cheap white wine was. Was it called Thunderbird or something like that? It was not pretty. Oh, and, God. Yeah, so can we not talk about that Derby game ever again? Because otherwise I just flash back to the, that bad episode. <laughs> I think George was the uh, the saving grace at Anfield because he, he, he wasn't nervous. He had this calm serenity about him that almost he'd looked in the future and go actually in an hour and a half win it nil with the last kick of the game basically and and he kind of he, he, he was able to put that feeling over to a lot of the players but certainly I was nervous going into the the warm-up and all that lot but as soon as he give his final 
little chat before we went out. I thought, God, we got. I think we're going to do this. You know, it was kind of like, right, let's. Well, let's just have a go. And I think so. George needs to take a load of credit for that. I thought I, I thought he, he calmed us down from the week for the whole week. I think, yeah. Dicko, it was just like we're just a bit of fun all week. Playing, yeah. yeah. No set piece. No like drills every day. The same old drills. It was just like yeah, just enjoy it. You know, fun, fun, fun. It made us calm and relax. And we we knew we could we we had the edge over Liverpool as well. We didn't have fear of Liverpool. To, to you know to score two goals, we could do that. But it's keeping the clean sheet was worried about more than anything. I think what I think also, Michael. I don't know how you felt the change in the system. What it did to certainly for me because whenever I played against Barnsley, I was like, oh, "God, I've got to play Barnsley," and he's and he's so difficult. He was yeah. such a good player, and I was like, "But what he did to me, he basically said to me, right, you going man to man on Barnsley, so I didn't have to worry about cover." So the the trouble with playing against a really good winger is you've got another job to do. You've got to put your cover on for your centre half. So you've got every now and again your mind's taken away away from who you're marking. So. But that night, he basically said to me and Nigel, right, you go and mark your winger and that's all you've got to do. So I, he focused my mind and said, I've only got one job to do. I can mark man-to-man mark Barnsley. I can do that. If he'd have played a four and I'd have other stuff to do, then maybe Barnsley would have got more space and then God knows what could have happened. Good point. But I thought mm. he'd done, he did that. I think he planned well ahead of that. And I remember him planning for the uh, for this, well, I don't know if it's for that game, but you remember he, he went to the, a flat five against United. We were training for it, and you were sort of like injured. You was like, "Will he make it or not? Will Dicko make it or not?" So I was going to right back to play in that position, and then you made it. But that's where I remember you started from. Then it was Amy. Amy, I wanted to ask you because I know you went up to the game. I mean, I mean, were you nervous on the way up, or was it just a general sort of feeling of excitement? I, I was. I was. Um, I believed. I think um, it, a lot of it comes from the fact that I'm really extremely bad at maths. And when Liverpool <laughs> were playing the uh, uh, the West Ham game a few days previous and they won 5-1, which is because of the goal difference, uh, made it that Arsenal needed to win 2-0. I did that thing where I wasn't... Take, the four goals that Liverpool scored, the plus four, I didn't do that as a sort of, if Arsenal won 2-0, it's two goals for Arsenal, but minus two for Liverpool. Mm. So I was right. like, oh, God, look, got to win 4-0. Like, that's not going to happen. And I was mortified and um, was listening to that game on the radio upstairs and then came down to tell my stepdad and his friend, Bad Back Albert, who were having dinner, <laughs> we've got to win 4-0. And then they went, what do you mean? And I said, well, Liverpool won 5-1 tonight. And they went, we've got to win 2-0. And I, once the penny dropped, I was like, oh, that's doable. It seems yeah. so much better that um, I, yeah. I believed. I thought it, was it, it is so you know much think... better. It's twice as good. <laughs> it is. Even it I is. can figure that out. But but I think what's interesting <laughs> is just rewinding slightly to the question you said when you about setting it up with that Derby and Wimbledon games. If if Arsenal didn't have such a, a, a what was perceived to be a hard task, an impossible task, I think if Liverpool you know knew they had to win the game, say. If Arsenal had won one of those games against um, Derby or Wimbledon and Liverpool had to win, they would have approached it completely differently. But because they just knew they mustn't lose by more one, I think it was really hard for them. And that helped Arsenal. Yeah, if you if you listen to uh, Baldy in the doc, in 89, he talks about that Liverpool were Liverpool. And there was a definite sense of, you know, going to Anfield and... Uh, 
keeping it nil-nil like George said and then coming in at half time we we were satisfied but also Liverpool were they were like they've got they've got scored two in the second half and we're kicking against the cop so we always get chances at the cop we always get a, you know a goal at the cop so I think they were you know that I think that that half time nil-nil was really crucial in being able to then start to turn the, the screw on them a little bit in the second half and the longer it went they were they were more than happy. Every minute that went past, they went, that's fine. Another minute gone, another minute gone. They haven't scored. And that, as soon as we scored in that whatever, you know, that moment, then you could just sense a little bit of and the crowd. You could, Michael, the crowd, you can tell they changed, didn't they? They all went, oh, hang on a minute. They could, they only need one more. And then it, yeah. it, it flipped on its head. It got louder and louder, didn't it? It got louder and louder. And then you missed that sitter. Well, Michael, <laughs> I never normally rush the shots, but that's the first shot I rushed. Oh, man. I mean, oh, that was God. the point. We all thought, as you went through the first time, we thought, oh, that was our chance. But obviously, that wasn't what was in your head. Did you Did you have any of those thoughts at that time? Or do you just think, oh, well, I'll get another one in a minute? I was just thinking, oh, I normally uh, take my time on, on these uh, chances. And I thought, no, I'll get another chance. I know I'm going to get another chance. I can feel it. I'll get another chance. It's just when. I didn't know what type, how long it was to go. I just thought, I'll just keep just keep playing. There'd be a chance. And it obviously it came from Alan Smith, from Dicko to me. And then that was it, really. Just pull it in. And, and, and <laughs> Michael, because you'd slightly rushed the first one, is that why yeah. on, on the second one you yeah. were like, I'm really going to take my time with this? <laughs> yeah, I just thought I was... You know how good Bruce Grobler was a goalkeeper, very agile. So I was just waiting for him to show show his uh, cards more than anything. Um, I was definitely going to take my time. Dick, I would have told you, that's how I sort of like, I don't, not really rush things. Who's the goal you scored in that season at Highbury? Exactly yeah, the Tottenham. same. Against, it against, against Tottenham. Against Is that Tottenham? Tottenham? Yeah. yeah. And uh, you yeah, just went through end. and it was, like almost, it was almost carbon copy of your finish you scored the goal and then we had that that final little moment with a pass back to uh to john lukic where we all just had mm. our <laughs> our hearts in our mouths and then yeah. and then it's over um i mean we've talked about this so much and you made a whole film amy and lee you made that the whole film about this i mean i'd never felt anything like that in my entire life that that feeling, and I'm sure you were feeling the same way. Well, I think I think I think you, you actually you saying it like that, Stony is is kind of brought it home to me um, that at those moments, and they don't happen that that often. You score goals and 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 you win games and all this, but moments like that, you you experience exactly the same as what the fans are experiencing. So yeah, you, your professionalism almost goes out the window because you, you're so elated. It's such a rush. It is like being a fan. So we, we were sharing the same thing. The people watch it on the telly, the people behind the goal um, and the people on the pitch, the staff, the coaches, we all shared that moment together. And it's very rare you can say that, that you, you, you felt the same thing. Amy, there's a moment when Michael scores the goal when there's there's almost silence as it goes in and then this sort of audible gasp. Were you aware of that in the stadium? To be honest, it, well, there was two things that was happening. One is that nobody knew what time it was. Well, not many people did. Unless you had a, a watch and I, I didn't. Um, there wasn't a clock that we could see inside the stadium. Um, I, I mean, a lot of... I, I think if you asked everybody in, in the ground or sort of supporters how much time there was to go... 
that you'd get a massive range of answers. Um, I mean, I remember Dave Rocastle once saying that he thought there was about 20 minutes to go when that goal went <laughs> in. And that when wow. he realised how late it was, he asked the ref or something, he, that his knees went to jelly, that he almost felt like he couldn't put one foot in front of the other, <laughs> that it was so overwhelming. And um, uh, the other thing is that was very strange is unlike most games that you watch, there was a level of concentration and a level of sort of immersing yourself into what was going on. It was a bit unusual. It was a bit surreal and otherworldly. So you're watching it and it was almost like you were in the game. So knowing what was going on and putting it into kind of perspective was a bit weird. And then you know, Michael just went through and everybody knew what was at stake. And when the goal went in, it was a, it was a different kind of pandemonium than anything I've ever experienced in a football ground. Um, because it, it was a terrace in those days, uh, clearly being so close after the Hillsborough disaster, that wouldn't be the case for, uh, you know, it, coming up quite soon afterwards. But we were still in an era of terraces and the movement, it was like being kind of caught on a wave in the sea and just going whoosh. And the people that I sort of started off with standing with when Michael Thomas was waiting for Bruce Grobelar to make his move were not the people that I was anywhere near when I kind of came up for air. And uh, <laughs> when I came up for air, I was standing next to these completely different people. And one of them was just going, yeah. it's my birthday. It's my birthday. Oh. And the bloke on the other side of me was like a kind of stereotype 80s skinhead looking quite scary kind of a guy, skinhead, tats, you know, um, just sobbing like a baby, crying his eyes out. And we were all hugging and I, I've never seen those people before or since, but we shared this moment that was like one of the great moments of your life. Um, and I've got this thing about hugging strangers and that being a big part of the football experience. And uh, I think that was the best ever hugging strangers moment I had. Harry's sponsors Handbrake Off, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy. Two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. Well, who wouldn't? And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave, a weighted ergonomic handle, five precision-engineered blades, rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover. As a listener of Handbrake Off, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash off right now. That is harrys.com forward slash off. We've spoken on this podcast many times about the celebrations and all the rest of it. The next season, is it hard? I mean, it's very hard to retain the league title. Uh, um, is it is it difficult after a high like that when you come back in from pre-season training and you start again? Uh, I mean, this is a question for both Lee and Michael. Uh, how difficult is it to, to sort of maintain focus and start again? Well, for me, I think we're still on a high. We won the league, brought it back to London. You know, our southern softies. Get a lot of get a lot of grief from the northerners. So for us to bring it back, we're still celebrating and all that. And pre-season was just a bit of bit of fun and enjoyed ourselves. We thought we could do it again. 
obviously we didn't. It wasn't concentrated as much as we did the first season. Yeah, I think, I mean, history will will prove that it's very difficult to win it um, back-to-back and obviously United have, have been the kings of that and Liverpool before. Um, but then there is, a, and also with a young team as well, you do, I, I believe you do get a little bit of um, swagger you know, all of a sudden, oh, hang on a minute, we're a flipping good team here, we're, we're all right. And you, you only have to step off it a tiny little bit. And, you know, George did his best to, to crack the whip like he like he was brilliant at. But I think there's just a little bit of ease about the next season. And then obviously we're refocused and, you know, the, the stick on the back of the hamstrings every morning from George kind of worked, started working again. And we're like, oh, we better... We better book up, and then we go, you know, nearly go undefeated the following season. So, yeah, there's definitely an element of, you know, that's why you've got to, you know, the the best teams always go again, go again. And I think that's probably when you look back at both our careers at Arsenal, the one thing that stands out is that I don't believe that the team and the players we had won the league quite enough. You know, we didn't go and go right three years on the trot like United did or Liverpool did before that. I just wanted to ask Michael about when you came to leave the club, really, how much of a wrench was that? How did it come about? And and, and, and how strange was it to sign for Liverpool, the club who you'd put to the sword just a couple of years before? Um, I think how it came about, obviously I wasn't enjoying the football after a while. At Dicko, we once say, like, you know, what George said to us, his famous words, like, uh, lines are, uh, Defenders have played till they're, what was it, 30 something? Midfielders have been burnt out. Yeah, we burnt out by 27, they 28, and the forwards played to 30. And I was like, oh, thanks for that. And it did, it <laughs> until, <laughs> until you play with George, you understood that because you're basically going, <laughs> the ball's going over your head and you're just like defending or tackling. That was it. And never, never getting on the ball at all. So I got to the point, I got fed up with it after a while and just wanted to get out. So, and then George wanted me to sign a new contract and I wouldn't. I want to make my contract run down. So, you know, he lured Bambi to the to the reserve team and just, you know, be little me, but I didn't really, didn't really matter really. I was, just, I was just shout through the hedges at the first team. How are we doing, boys? Michael, <laughs> do, you remember when, do, you remember, do you remember when he used to, uh, you kind of like, sometimes, uh, this is my memory of it anyway, that you... He used to let you do the warm up with us, and then he'd give you a bag of balls and just send you off onto a pitch on your own. Yeah, yeah and probably. We, every, yeah. And he'd be he'd be running off with a bag of balls on his own, and like just running up and down the pitch with a ball dribbling. And it was like, oh god, it was so sad to see this guy's just won as a league not long ago, and all of a sudden he's, he, you know, he's out with the out with the empty. Well, that's yours, though, isn't it? You know, you, yeah, absolutely. You know, I just go back to the afternoon with Phil, and Trey goes, ah. Oh. You know, you got to go work and feel in the afternoons back at the at the ground by myself. I'm like, yeah, you're gonna laugh. <laughs> so I'll be a feel. I'll be a feel. And I was, what are we doing, feel? And I think it's got got a little run around the track, and that's it, really. I said, feel, this is a joke. He goes, yeah, I know, but it's George. It's George. You got to get on with it. Like, okay. You didn't want to get on his bad side, did you? Uh, no. Amy, I'm just sort of interested uh, hearing hearing the way Michael's talking there. I, I mean, it, it does show up what a tough business football can be, training on his own about a year and a half later. In a lot of walks of life, if you get strong characters um, and things start to grate between them, it usually only goes one way. It's quite difficult to turn it around and maybe that's why Michael ended up... Um, after being, you know, such a big part of things from when he was a boy at Arsenal with that great group, uh, 
to, to moving on. I mean, but, you know, George was, was ruthless. He was ruthless with every, everybody. I mean, yeah. he was never more ruthless than he was with, with Rocky, um, which I think to this day is, is something that he feels is one of the hardest things he ever did in football, but he felt like it was the right thing to do. I guess that's what made George the winner and competitor as a manager that he was. He, you know, in, in, his, in his height, he took decisions that were, whether they were right or wrong, I don't think he was the kind of manager that you found in someone like Arsene Wenger, who was uh, really very highly focused on the, the, the individual, the human, the, the mental side, the re relationship, man-to-man, person-to-person feelings between uh, people within the same squad. Because I think he came from a different generation where he didn't think that was part of the picture. Amy, I thought he was, to be honest, I love the night you said there, but I thought he was more hard done by on Paul Davidson than David. Yeah. You know, at least David didn't be like me, be in reserves and just stay there. Paul Davis was there for a while. He wouldn't use him and let him train by himself for ages until he yeah. had to use him and pull him out of uh, <laughs> retirement <laughs> and then play him in the, in the team to get yeah. us back on, on track when I'd left. Yeah, and, 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 remember, and remember that. Everybody forgets about what done to him. And, 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 Paul was out the team for a long time and then yeah. he suddenly appeared and, and was vital in winning the Cup, yeah. cup in, in, exactly. uh, in 1994. Frightening. But I think wasn't it may be a case that, because I suppose as a player maybe in your day, you didn't have so much clout against the manager, whereas maybe now with all the agents and, and people around a, a big player, there'd be a lot more stink going on if someone was unhappy. Is that, is that a fair comment? Well, I understand, but we're all homegrown players, aren't we? Remember, so we're through the homegrown players, the big players that like Charlie Nicholas and before that, you know, they just went, got, got rid, he got rid of them. He just went bang, you're off. That, you're, that, you're was, that was George's strength, George that, that he, yeah. he created that strength in the, as a manager. But it, it's interesting what you said about um, Arsene and, and George. There's so many similarities about the pair of them, but it's just kind of hidden in a different um, front, if you like. So both of them were winners, the, you know, absolutely win at all costs. The team is the most important thing. There's a, there's a synergy about the pair of them in that respect. And although you say that Arsene cared about his players in a more obvious way, that he was a bit more, um, bit more into the psychological side and the, the, the mental side of, of the game in that respect, looking after his players, it, um, you couldn't really talk to George. George was going, right, we'll do it. this is how we're doing it. I don't really, I'm don't really. i not really bothered what you think. This is what you're doing. If you don't like it, I'll get someone else. That was his kind of... But ultimately, the team was the, the pinnacle of everything. With Arsene, he would go, right, this is what, we're gonna, this is what I'd like you to... This is, I'm going to give you a freedom to, to play in this kind of way. What do you think? And then you would tell him what you think, and then he would ignore you. So he, 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 it was the same thing, and he would do it his way anyway. It was the same thing. It was just wrapped up in a different wrapper. The common denominator of it is that he's, the, both of them were win at all costs, and ultimately the team is the most important thing, and that's why you get two winners, and, and Sir Alex Ferguson was the same. And Arsene, he could... He could be ruthless too. I mean, if you look at the way he dealt with certain players, you know, once they reach the age of 30, he wouldn't give out a long-term contract to anybody. Uh, the way Ian Wright was sold in 98, you know, he always had one eye on the future. And as soon as yeah. you were, you know, the wrong side of 30 or disposable in some way, especially in the early part of his Arsenal career, he would make pretty firm decisions and, and move people on. 
Michael, it's um, been an absolute pleasure reliving uh, your career uh, at the Arsenal and, uh, of course, that, that great moment in 1989. Thank you very, very much for joining us. It was a pleasure, mate. Pleasure, anytime. Lee, I've often thought about Michael because he was so synonymous with this huge, iconic moment and is naturally quite a quiet guy yeah. that it was something almost strange that he had to take into the rest of his life. I mean, I think to this day he's still asked countless times every week about that mm. goal. Mm. Do you think in a way that it was a lot for him to take at 20 years of, of age and, you know, to be kind of known as this miracle man and, the you know, the guy people would like literally almost fall on, on the floor like and bow in front of him <laughs> for what he'd done? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, he, as you said, he was a young boy. He didn't know, uh, didn't know what had hit him because it literally all fell at his feet, and there it was. Um, and so, I'm pleased now knowing. And I, you know, I was never that close to. I don't think anyone gets really. I'm, I'm sure he's got really close friends, but um, the players. He was just. He was. He was just Mickey. That was just him. He was really laid back. He was really quiet. He didn't like the limelight. Then all of a sudden he, he became this national, say national hero. He, he almost was, um, but certainly in in North London, everybody was like, "Oh my God, he's gone and done this thing." And I'm I'm really pleased now that all these years later, thirty years later, he seems to be really quite enjoying the bit of scoring that goal and the, what all goes with it. And I don't think, you know, it's fine to say, well, I would have enjoyed it like this. Well, I'm not Michael Thomas, so everybody's different. And it's just, I, I think he's actually opened up to being able to enjoy it a little bit more. And that's kind of nice from a, a teammate to look in and go, I've enjoyed it for years and I'm so proud of it. And, and you know, making the documentary, Amy, how, um, you know, to get him to do that. That was the first phone call that I made. Michael has to be in it because he scores the goal and he's got to be in it. And we had our times where it might not happen. We weren't too sure whether we, when we could get him in the studio and, and it went on, a, went on a little bit, but I think he, he, at the premiere, he looked like he was really enjoy, enjoying the process of watching the doc, seeing the history that he made and actually enjoying it. And it's, it's beautiful to see. I think it's like being part of the family again. I think he felt like, yeah, ready to to really relish that family that he he loved um and to be you know to to enjoy feeling part of it again seemed to be special for him which is absolutely fantastic. yeah it's lovely to see uh, amy uh, you have been writing this week for the athletic um about uh, this charity uh from uh, wembley stadium the wembley, wembley have opened their kitchen uh, for charity to cook twenty thousand meals a day tell us more about this yeah, it's um, uh, one of those things where you sometimes come across people in life that you can't quite believe that amazing things can happen. But in obviously what is such a difficult period for everyone since the lockdown and the COVID uh, pandemic started to affect everybody, um, I got introduced to um, someone who started a charity who's a chef and a humanitarian who decided this is what I'm good at. I'm going to make meals for people who need it. And it kind of grew and grew and grew and they needed um, some bigger space uh, for some bigger kitchens to make more meals to get out there to uh, a range of people from NHS, uh, you know, uh, key workers on the front line 
to homeless people in shelters um, and vulnerable individuals and families. And uh, it sounded like a pretty good thing to me. So um, I kind of tried to help them uh, by ringing up a few football stadium people saying, your stadiums are closed. What's going on with your kitchens? Are you interested in this? And um, it was a, almost so ludicrous because on the one hand, you had this little grassroots brand new charity full of sort of well-meaning volunteers and the type of people who are involved in this thing is everything from a pilot to a children's entertainer to a barrister to you know you know a student all sorts of types um and on the other side of this conversation was Wembley Stadium and you thought nah this can't work and in in fairness to Wembley and the FA they were incredible and couldn't have been more supportive and helpful um so they ended up opening their doors to allow Compassion London, which is this charity, to uh, to try and make more meals to get out there. 20,000 is the aim on It's quite a high aim. It's going to take a lot of food and a lot of cooking and a lot of delivering. But uh, the more that can be done, I mean, you receive messages from people who are, you know, really, really hungry, who can't have that basic human right of food very easily at the moment, which seems difficult to accept in a city like London. Uh, and that's why everybody, I think, who's just kind of trying to get on with their lives and, you know, stay, staying home or staying alert, as the case may be, uh, that's that's fine. But we have a duty, I think, as society to look after people who are in dire circumstances at the moment and whose conditions have changed very much for the worse very, very suddenly. So um, anyone who's listening, I'd just say... Th- for myself, thank you to Wembley and the FA because I never thought in a million years that they wouldn't laugh us out of the room. <laughs> never mind open the kitchens. Um, and, you know, if anyone's wanting to volunteer and thinks it feels like something they've got a few hours for in this time, it's a pretty great charity. Go and check it out. James, did you know that Wembley could fit seven billion pints of milk inside it? Uh, that was my favourite stat, yes. There were that a few, a actually. There was, one about, there was one about loads and loads of double-decker buses as well, but I thought the seven billion pints of milk one was better. I, I, I was having trouble conceiving of that. Uh, I also didn't know the, the waste from 20,000 peeled potato, uh, doing potatoes for 20,000 meals a day uh, was quite interesting as well. But this is, James, I mean, this is, uh, this is a good thing. I mean, I mean I, Henry Winter actually, I think, wrote a piece about various football stadiums. I think Man City has been used for, uh, uh, to help nurses. I mean, a, a number of um, stadiums are sort of helping out. But this is a big thing that Wembley are doing here. Yeah, I think Tottenham Stadium, if Venice, has been used as well. Arsenal have done plenty in the community too. They've helped with distribution of meals in Islington. It's great to see the big powers in football getting involved. And, you know, there's this kind of conversation happening about Project Restart and is the game coming back? But I think, you know, you look behind that at the community work that's being done. uh, And it's difficult not to think that that's kind of every bit, if not more, important right now. Well, quiet. No one goes to bed hungry. This is the uh, uh, the uh, motto from Compassion London, which is the charity that Amy's working with. Uh, meanwhile, James, you wrote uh, about an Arsenal prospect that never quite made it, a guy called Wellington Silver. Um, yeah. I, didn't, I mean, I'd heard quite a lot about this guy, uh, but I never saw him play. Well, not many Arsenal fans did, did they? No, he never played for the first team, but it's a story that had stayed with me uh, from when he first came over on trial when he was about 15 years old. And he played in a youth team game against Norwich. uh, And I think when he went off injured, it was 
8-2 to Arsenal and he'd scored for and made for. And I knew a couple of people who were there watching that game. And, you know, these are people who are at the club every single day, who deal with young players all the time, young prospects. And I've never seen or heard them so excited about a young players. they were this guy. He was just extraordinary. And it carried on. He came back for a couple more training periods with the club and was incredibly impressive, had all the ability in the world. But it didn't work out for him. And there was a bit of a sliding doors moment where they thought he was going to get a work permit to join up with the first team squad immediately. It didn't happen. Uh, He didn't get it. And I think they appealed it. Arsene Wenger got involved, but they didn't get it. And he had to go out on loan to Spain. And I I think in his own words, he felt demotivated. And, you know, it's funny. Michael Thomas mentioned Michael Jordan earlier. Obviously, mindset, attitude, competitive spirit is such a huge part in any elite sport. And maybe in some of those categories, Wellington fell down. But I did feel for him too, because it's tough, you know, as an 18-year-old kid coming over, you think you're going to be in London. Then you're sent out to Spain on your own. You know, they're sort of shifting club to club. I think he had seven clubs in four years or something like that it's uh yeah it's tough but yeah he's made a decent career for himself in brazil but certainly nothing like what might have been expected of him when he was a teenager well amy um james in that piece was talking about sorry about uh, martinelli and and uh and the fact that he's over here but he's got a work permit do, do you think that we are a little, as fans, we're a little unforgiving of these young kids. We don't think about the fact they're they're thousands of miles from home. They're maybe lonely. They have difficulty with a language. Do you think that we we maybe don't give them a break enough? I don't know. I'm always a little bit reluctant to try and talk about what fans think as a whole entity because I think there's such a range and such a spectrum. Um, I can only speak for myself and I would always empathise with... uh, with anybody who's facing that kind of um, massive move. And I don't even think it has to be kids. I think it can be some older players and some more experienced players who still might find uh, a change in environment actually quite challenging. Um, It depends what kind of person you are. I mean, I think if I was a kid and I was sent to a different part of the world at 18, I'd have bloody loved it. But that's that's me. That's not everyone. Um, You know, some people will find settling into different environments just and homesickness a massive thing. I remember Edu actually when he came from Brazil, um, and he was quite a bit older than than Wellington or Martinelli. But he he found it he had a very challenging time adapting to life in England, and a lot of that was pressure he put on himself because he was a bit injured. He didn't feel like he was playing properly, and it wasn't going for him in the way that he wanted to start with. He'd had a delayed start anyway. He also had a um, big personal uh, uh, tragedy to overcome. He lost a, a sister shortly before moving to London. And he needed a bit more sort of care and attention. And it took ages. And Arsene Wenger used to say to him almost every day when he came in in the morning for training, and he was not in the team to start with, he's injured. You know, how are you? But like, not just how are you, but how, how are you? How, you know... And how's your family? And how's your mum and dad? And how is everybody? And just people taking that time to have a bit of care in someone. And obviously someone like Gilberto was around who spent a lot of time with Edo in that early period. These are things that can be make or break for whether someone settles in. So you can't judge anyone, I don't think. I sat with my son and watched the 2002 game against Manchester United. Uh, Edu, he said to me, Edu was 
good, wasn't he? I said, yes, yes, he was. He was an outstanding footballer. Uh, another uh, outstanding footballer, Michael Cox, uh, has written a piece about him, about Jack Wilshire, um, and about that game uh, against Barcelona in 2011, which we all remember. Um, I mean, Amy, that night, um, we all thought that Jack Wilshire was going to be a superstar, did we not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Barcelona's midfield particularly were the the dons of that area of the game in the world. So for a, a little guy who just showed up out of the youth team to um, play with such fearlessness, such audacity, such courage, um, that's always something I think when you see a young player coming in that is a, that is a fascinating kind of insight in, into, I think, where they're at and how much chance they've got. When a young player comes in, are they going to be playing safety first because they don't want to make a mistake? Or are they able in their character and personality to take a risk to show what they can do and not be scared? Um, and over the years, we've seen that a lot of players that you might have hoped could make it just don't quite get over that, that important line and stay more on the safety first element. Yeah. And I think in this modern game uh, to really make it you have to get over that line and show you've got the personality to to express yourself and, and make something happen in the game and uh, Jack did that that night and that's why there was such a lot of fuss and talk about him afterwards and it's one of those that you know the if only it's like you need an asterisk sort of next to his career um, with, a, with a big if only because a fully fit Jack Wilshire, and he, although he was never speedy, he had a great burst when he was a kid. And somehow, with all the injuries and all the rehab he's had to do, and all the muscular work he had to do to quite and recover from them, something in that burst was affected. So, I, I, when sometimes people look at the player he, you know, became a bit later on in life, and hopefully his, there'll still be a lot more football for him to come because he really deserves it. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of critics were oh, always too slow, can't get around anymore. But it was never a sort of speed thing. It was about that that ability to burst past players and burst into space and make something happen. You've had, always had such a fantastic awareness and technical ability. Um, and I think that he's, an, he's one of those who will always go through his life kind of with Arsenal in his heart from the, the time he had with the club. Well, I think that's a fair point, isn't it, James? The fact that he did, he was a proper gooner, wasn't he? He felt like a fan. Yeah, and I think the the context of this game is it, it came off the back of a period where, you know, Barcelona were trying to lure Cesc Fabregas away, back to the new Camp, and there was a lot of talk about him having Barcelona DNA. And Jack's performance that night, you know, felt like we were saying, well, this is what Arsenal DNA looks like. And at that time, Barcelona had provided a kind of model of attractive football and Arsene... And Arsenal, you know, although we weren't as good a team, we were kind of uh, kind of the equivalent in some ways in terms of stylistic approach to the game at any rate. And he was absolutely brilliant. I remember being in the stands that night and just being blown away. As Amy says, it was his ability to kind of separate himself from other midfielders, to go past people that really made him special. And Michael points out in the piece, actually, he didn't start the game especially well. It was almost like he had to find his feet, but... Once he did, and once his confidence began to grow, he just blossomed brilliantly. And by the end of the match, he'd sort of taken over the midfield 
and I think inevitably when we reflect on Jack's time with Arsenal, that that's going to be the high point, isn't it? Because uh, you know at that stage it really just looked like he had absolutely. Well, he had the whole club at his feet, really. And it's such a shame, I think, that we didn't see him more consistently. And I'd echo Amy's sentiments that I hope we see more of him in the future because, you know, I think we all do think of him very fondly. And we think of him as an Arsenal boy, kind of wherever he ends up. Yeah, quite. Um, I mean, there's also been, by the way, a piece uh, by uh, Adam Crafton, uh, who's written uh, for The Athletic, about uh, Dennis Suarez, uh, who uh, I think played a total of something like 60, 60 minutes or something. Uh, it didn't didn't really work out in, in terms of injury. Uh, definitely worth a read, though, just to see uh, what it's like from the player's point of view. And also, don't forget, you can get a 90-day free trial for all The Athletic articles. Just go to www.theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. Um, before we let you guys go, uh, let's have a song. Amy, have you got a song for us before we go? Well, the only uh, Mickey-related one I had was uh, Hey Mickey by Tony Basil, but I'm not sure anyone wants to hear that again. Um, <laughs> that so is a I'll... terrible song. <laughs> well, I'm only throwing at you what you throw at us yep, most weeks. Yeah, fair um, enough. <laughs> I, I, in slightly better taste, I go for my favourite song from the 89 soundtrack, which Tayo helped us pull together, which is the one that always gets me, which is Inner City Good Life from 89. Yeah, I'm going to defer to Amy on that one because, and if you haven't seen the 89 movie, do get hold of a copy of it and the music is great, the soundtrack is brilliant, it is as much about the culture and the music of that time in some ways as it is the football, so yeah, I'll I'll second Amy's vote on that one. Beautiful. Uh, Thank you, James. Thank you, Amy. I hope you stay safe and look after yourselves. Thanks to Lee Dixon. And, of course, to Mickey Thomas uh, and to our producer, uh, Tayo, for looking after us. This has been Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast for The Athletic. I'm Ian Stone. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.